You are listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. One of Us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio-based or banner ads, but on a case-by-case basis. If you are interested in that, contact us at oneofusnet at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at 2 5 10 or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of us needs and appreciates all your support. All right, everyone, sit down. You sit down. All right. Now, you know the drill. It's Christmas time, so it's time for the annual listening of the One of Us Penitentiary Review, the Christmas Review, and I swear to Christ on a cracker, if any of y'all inmates act up like Chris Cox did last year, I swear I will harm you physically, and you will get sent back to your cell. Okay, just sit down. Hey, Frank! Frank, what did I just say? One second. I, I need to respond to this text. Just no, one no, second. What are you doing with the phone in one of us penitentiary? Luane, get him back in his cell. Now, get him out. Give me the phone. God, okay. I just got to check my Instagram really fast. Can I go back to my cell? Then I have to watch this thing? No, you <laughs> work here. Oh, God, I'm going to get a smoke. All right, the rest of you, sit down and listen to the review a Christmas at One of Us Penitentiary, also known as Eileen, the psychological thriller based on the book by Otessa Moshley-Tay. Moshley, I don't know, I need a smoke. All right, let's go. I swear, you inmates, you act up, I will get you. Anyway, hello, y'all. It is Mindy. And as I said, we are here to review Eileen, a psychological thriller starring Anne Hathaway, based on the book of the author that I'm sorry I butchered your last name. Because she's totally listening. Yes. Otessa (laughs) Moshlefay? Moshlefay? Again, I apologize. So... (laughs) Before we get into the ins and outs, and I will add, if you like to watch Die Hard in your Christmas rotation, Eileen will fit in just fine. But before we get into that, who would like to go into the synopsis of this film? Eileen, the title character, played by Thomas and McKenzie, lives with her drunken former sheriff dad, Shea Wiggum, and she works an office job at the local penitentiary for the... I guess it's the boys' penitentiary, the men's penitentiary. It's like a juvenile hall type thing. Yeah, it's juvenile home sort of prison. And Anne Hathaway shows up as the new prison shrink, basically, Rebecca. And she's all Anne Hathaway in her way through this. She's all suave and sophisticated, and Eileen is pretty much immediately smitten with her, which, I mean, is Anne Hathaway. So. And bear in mind, it is the 1960s, so yes. there's like gender roles and expectations going on all this time. Yeah, there's plenty of that. There is a subplot that becomes plot involving Lee Polk, one of the inmates, who killed his father, and that's what got him sent there. Although, as Eileen puts it, when somebody says he killed a cop, she replies, he killed his dad. There's a difference. It's such a great line. It is, because you know that that's the exact same situation. Well, 
The situation is different, but she also is stuck with a terrible cop. Well, she also has daydreams of killing her father and herself. Oh, yeah. There are periodic fantasy moments in this where murder and suicides happen periodically just to keep you on your toes. And sex. Oh, and sex. Yeah. Can't forget that because, of course, she's a repressed young woman. And, yeah, things just kind of get all noir and psychological thrillery and... You know, they end as well as you expect them to for something like this. And what do you expect them to, Luane? Well, <laughs> I expect badly, maybe, for somebody. That was the thing that was kind of interesting about this, I guess. The character of Rebecca, Anne Hathaway's character, just does not belong here in any way. She stands out right from the moment she rolls up in, like, the red thunderbird. Everything else is gray and gross. It's like... Was it Massachusetts? Yeah, Massachusetts. In winter, it's almost Christmas. Everything is gray and bleak. And then here comes Anne Hathaway in her bright red car and her sophisticated Harvard ways. And it's going to go badly. I mean, she just doesn't belong here. And that becomes more obvious the further along it gets. And as Eileen becomes more smitten with her. One of my other favorite lines in this was, everybody's angry here, it's Massachusetts. (laughs) I don't know, how about you guys, where were you with this? So this is my jam. Sure. (laughs) No, it really is. I mean, this was not planned, I promise you, this was just the first thing I grabbed. I am wearing a shirt that says... Noir City. Noir City. Fantastic. All that to say, this is my jam. I was so drawn to the character of Eileen, even though she does daydream about not so nice pretty things (laughs) my heart couldn't help but bleed for her because she never got to have her life Eh, who doesn't you know she's really a stunted little girl at the end of the day Mm -hmm. still under the thumb of her father in the home she grew up in while her sister saluted that she got to go out and live her life i think her father says that to her at some point you know she's living her life and so she's sort of reconciled herself with the fact that this is going to be her life until mm-hmm. he dies. But after that, probably nothing more for her. So I do love when Anne Hathaway enters the film because it's such a turn. The energy changes, the dynamics change. And, you know, she's faced with this woman who approaches everything with abandon. You know, she brings her worldliness with her. And, you know, she shows up there, I think she says, primarily because it's different. It's a different world. Mm-hmm. Like, she seeks it out. You know, it didn't take long, maybe a couple of scenes between them, that took me, uh, at least, to realize that, uh, well, Rebecca is her fantasy woman. Mm-hmm. She's everything she wants to be. Everything that she doesn't think she could ever be. And there is some attraction to her. Mm-hmm. But she's in love with the woman that she is. And this isn't a scenario where she exists only in her head, for God's sakes, but she does let Rebecca get imprinted onto her. And so, you know, her demeanor changes. She becomes less demure, at the very least physically. She starts smoking. She starts smoking and... Dressing up. She starts dressing up and she starts daring that she, most importantly, daring that she could have a life Mm -hmm. outside of the one that she's had. And these two personas do start to conflate. And at one point at the bar, they do go out to a bar together for drinks. At one point, Rebecca gives her name as Eileen, Mm -hmm. which I thought was like, well, that just cinches it. Yeah. Well, then at the end of that scene, she smokes the butt of Rebecca's Mm -hmm. cigarette and orders the drinks that Rebecca has been drinking. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of the things that my favorite part of this was that relationship between Eileen and Rebecca Mm -hmm. and the psychological 
sort of single white female thing that was happening with Eileen towards her. But it's also kind of like a guardian angel type of situation in a way. And I wish that they had just stuck to that and just stuck to the two of them and how they interacted and how they co-mingled together because it wasn't just one-sided. It wasn't just Eileen trying to be like Rebecca. Rebecca was also trying to wheedle in to be Eileen. And that added a much more interesting hook than just the one or just the other. And then, as you said, Luane, the B plot becomes the A plot. And honestly, I think that took a little bit of that away. It's like, I don't want to really focus on this B plot. I want it to continue to be in the background while the focus becomes on Eileen and Rebecca. And the B plot came in, I guess, essentially to just kind of give it an ending, not necessarily a deus ex machina ending, but kind of. And it's just like, We just kind of need it to end now. Well, I felt the ending was necessary for me, I felt, in terms of the Eileen character. Oh, well, I think it was necessary in what she did. I mean, like how it resolved itself, but how it got to that resolution is what I mean. Well, I think that was necessary. I think that we do need to see her finally push over into that brink, into that side that she's been teetering on. And it was ultimately what liberated her. But I want to go back. I got to slightly disagree with you about wanting to have more time with Rebecca. I think that I didn't mind that we don't because I like that she is this. All I can think about is the word phantom and she's not a phantom. She's a flesh and blood character. She's a force of nature. Well, she's a real person. And I think that if we spend more time with her, she becomes less intriguing and she needs to remain intriguing for Eileen. There's no reason for us to get closer to her because that would mean Eileen would have to get closer to her. And I don't think that would have served the story well. I don't think that would have served Eileen's journey all that well. I would agree with you if it was only Eileen's journey, though. And yes, she is the title character. But as I said, it wasn't just Eileen changing for Rebecca. It was clear that there were faults and scars and cracks in Rebecca that were being influenced by Eileen. And it would have been a lot more interesting to see those cracks form more. Well, I think those were there before she got there. I think she just covered them up well. Right. And the more you got to see it was the interesting bit. Yeah. But I always thought that who Rebecca was at the end was who she was when she showed up. Mm-hmm. We just didn't see it. Well, it's the transition away from the mythic quality of the Rebecca as an identity to the Rebecca, the reality, and what impact that has on Eileen from that point on. Mm -hmm. Because the first time we have very obvious, since the the Rebecca facade is, well, it's to some degree a facade, is when they meet up basically in the third act and the B-plot becomes the A-plot. Because that's one of the few times that you see Rebecca not self-assured and solidly footed on everything. And so I think... She needed to be mythic until that point, and that is the additional thing that I think can shove Eileen over from where she was, because up to that point, she's been trying to mimic Rebecca and all that, but she still lives in the world that she's in. Like, the night she goes out partying with Rebecca and ends up hung over in the front yard in the car, she gets locked out by her dad, who's like, nope, that's not how a girl behaves. And while you're at it, I'm going to let you in, but now you're going to read the entirety of Oliver Twist as punishment. God, for a drunkard to, like, call you out. Jeez. Yeah, I'm like, 
she brings you two bottles of gin every night when she comes home from work. Yeah. I don't know that you're in a position to talk to her about alcohol, but that's just it. Like, even though she has touched this legendary, like, literally touched this legendary being, this sort of almost mythic thing in front of her, she still returns back to the life until we get to that transition where Rebecca stops being perfect. Well, here's the thing. I don't think that she was. I don't think that that was the turning point. I think you saw some of it before at the bar. Sure. And so it's like you got little snippets of it, but they were covered up. And I think that if they kept the B plot as the B plot, there would have been more opportunity to just dig deeper and deeper at a slower pace to see the cracks get bigger and bigger. And that... I think would have been more appealing than making this B plot an A plot. I don't think it needed that switch. I'm not sure that Rebecca needs all that much more exploration. I mean, it's not her story. Yeah, I do too. She's the most attractive character in the film. It's not her film. It's a different film then. It's just Eileen being pushed to the side, essentially, because, you know, that character is more attractive and would eventually take over the story. The bit we've been referring to is the B plot becoming the A plot. Rebecca mentions having speculations about that element early in it and then kind of pushes things to see how things go. But until we were talking about it later, I began to wonder a little bit about Eileen's own situation, particularly given her response to the discovery she makes near the end of this as well. Because a lot of the elements that come up from the B-plot are elements that are kind of sprinkled in her own life. Mm -hmm. We don't have quite the same level of detail and stuff like that. She'd be exercising some ghosts there, for sure. Yeah. One thing about Eileen I did find really interesting, too, from a character perspective, is she doesn't have her own clothes. She wears her mom's clothes. I know. Right. And what that means in regards to the rest of the film. It's a little girl dressing up in her mother's clothes. Mm -hmm. She's so sad. She breaks my heart. She does. Her dad, when he's complaining about her wearing one of the dresses, I bought it for her, her mother, to wear when she got out of the bug house. So we know that Eileen's mother has been absent for blocks of time, probably in some sort of institution. And so there are all kinds of other things that we can speculate about how things went, particularly since you have the other successful sister who went off and did her own thing. I'm almost kind of curious to read the novel now as a result, because I'm curious if it gets into more of that, right. or if this is just an abbreviated version of everything that's already there anyway. But mm-hmm. it, I don't know, man. This was both what I was expecting and not at the same time, and that's not a helpful way to describe it. <laughs> <laughs> but like, you go into this knowing there's going to be some weird and maybe some squicky stuff, because it's a psychological thriller. And even though it's set in the 60s or whatever, it's made now. And so there's stuff we can get away with in film that we couldn't have then. That kind of sounds like a final thought. Yeah, you know, yeah, I think I'm kind of getting there. And I'm looking at the clock, too. Like, yeah, we should probably wrap it up anyway. In the end, this looks good. It sounds good. It's got music that sounds like it was stuff that didn't get used in a Hitchcock movie. The performances are pretty strong from both Hathaway and Mackenzie, and of course Shea Wiggum is Shea Wiggum. Oh, I so. love Shea Wiggum. He's oh, so terribly he's... good in this. Like, he's an I awful know. person, but he's really good at it. But he's also like, he gives him some vulnerability, mm-hmm. which I think you could give this character, and he doesn't, man, he's good. This is my favorite performance of his, I'm so sorry. Lauren. Oh, no, it's Shut okay. Up. But, like, he has this monologue where he's talking about people basically just like her, and I'm like, he's describing NPCs. 
He's describing the people who aren't the main character in anything. And he's also telling her that's basically what she is. And she kind of is, until she isn't. Mm -hmm. It works, but I'm with Mindy. I don't know if that was the best way to do it, but I also understand I have like 90 minutes or whatever to tell this story. And so here's how this, we're going to flip this switch. In the end, I liked way more of this than I actually kind of complained about with it. So I'm going to give it 3.75 out of 5 Sexy Red Thunderbirds. And Frank, go ahead. Yeah, like I said before, this is my jam. And I love the aesthetics of this film. One of my favorite things, and not surprising as a cinephile, is a sense of place. Mm-hmm. How rich of a texture a filmmaker can give the world that it's trying to bring to life on the screen. You know, how authentic does it feel? Can you actually feel the cold in a way? And you can hear. I think that the production design, all the muted colors were just tremendous. And they did so much to just put you in there. The score, I was in love with this moody atmospheric score that just totally put me in the mindset like all right i know what kind of world i'm in i know that this is not a world where good things happen to the people in it that was so great and the credits are right from like the 1960s and this made me think of 60s films Mm -hmm. that didn't go as far in certain scenes as this one did obviously because of you know they had stricter boundaries but they did push those boundaries Mm -hmm. a lot and everyone knows pick an example from that era of a film that was considered you know daring and bold and failed for that reason but is now revered today i think that this would have fit right in that era of those hollywood mavericks of the 60s that really like gambled and this movie does gamble it does take some chances it does not care about adhering to all that many conventions and i love films that approach everything like rebecca does with abandon it knows what it wants to do and this film does i loved the turn i did i love nothing more it's like watching the hitchcock reference earlier it's like the psycho effect you know i love being like led down a garden path and being picked up and dropped into something else it's like he did with psycho that kept me on my toes and when it happens it says very different things about both women but it was so stirring And from then on, I think it balanced both the thriller genre and the character piece tale, which this movie ultimately is. (sighs) It worked for me. Everything here worked. The performances were great. Yeah, I don't have a ton of complaints. I wouldn't have minded going on a bit longer. I I was like, why are we going to wrap up? I'm having a good time. But other than that, no, this is great. It's a great end of year entry. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and give this 8 out of 10 times you give your friend's name at the bar because uh, I guess you just don't want to be seen there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I kind of agree with both of you. I think that this film was incredibly good at creating the mood. The psychological thriller aspect was done to a T. It was cold and gray and depressing and then you had this Hathaway adding a touch of color but color in not the best kind of way it was so interesting to see how both those worlds bled into each other and I didn't hate the twist I didn't hate it I wish that it had gotten more time to see how Rebecca and Elaine bled into each other before the twist happened. 
So it's like, I'm not sure whether that's a good or a bad in that I wanted more. I think maybe we wanted more of the same. It's just like a couple more scenes. Yeah. yeah it's just like, I want to see more of the psychological mind fuckery going on before wrapping it up and i'm not sure whether that's good that i was yearning for it or bad that it didn't happen but yeah this is a really good noir psychological thriller and the mood of it does place it in the 60s in cold ass awful massachusetts and so (laughs) and it does get you interested and it's like what is the book let's see if it's this, this psychological as a film when you have more time in a book how far deeper does it go so, yeah, totally check this out. Make it part of your Christmas rotation, because technically it is a Christmas movie, y'all. Technically, um, it's a Christmas movie. <laughs> watch this and then watch Elf. Exactly. Yes, be different. Be bold like Rebecca and watch Eileen. So I'm going to give it the same as you, Luane. I'm going to get 375 Pickles that are kind of off, but you eat them anyway because there's nothing else in the fridge. (laughs) Oh, I hate pickles. Well, then have the cheese without any knives to cut it with. Just stick like a block of Velveeta. (laughs) 